Part 2 Imponderables Anyway Liberation In the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta 29, the Buddha said to the bhikkhus, So this holy life, monks, does not have gain, honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of samadhi as its benefit, or knowledge and vision as its benefit, but it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. What exactly is meant by the unshakable deliverance of mind? The Buddha taught that four stages of inner liberation may be discerned. Once attained, they cannot be weakened or lost, and hence they may all be deemed unshakable. In fact, the word attainment here has to be used with some caution. The Buddha defined each stage of liberation in terms of the irrevocable abandonment of specific mental defilements, a deliverance from them. The changes that take place at each stage are thus experienced primarily in terms of endings rather than gains. In the central Buddhist metaphor, embodied in the word Buddha itself, the experience is referred to as awakening. Those who have reached the final and highest stage of deliverance are called arahants. They have transcended even the subtlest expressions of greed, hatred and delusion. Their self-referring motivations are now entirely replaced by wisdom and compassion. All of the inner cravings and attachments that provide the fuel for rebirth are no more. It is believed by many Thai Buddhists, monastic and lay, that Lung Po Cha reached this highest stage. Did Lung Po himself know or believe himself to be an arahant? There is evidence that he did, but it's surprisingly scanty. Perhaps the most important observation to be made on the topic is that Lung Po made a point of never speaking about it. On a rare occasion, he might refer to himself with the simple and down-to-earth phrase, I have nothing. But in general, Lung Po deflected all questions about his attainments. His reticence over a matter of such huge significance to him was largely mandatory. The Vinaya restricts the extent to which a monk may speak about his own practice to Anupa Sampana, anyone not yet fully ordained. The importance of the restrictions may be gathered by the ruling that irrespective of the audience, a monk who falsely claims spiritual attainments, unless through genuine overestimation, must be immediately expelled from the Sangha. At first glance, this may seem disproportionately severe given that the other three expulsion offences consist of murder and theft, universally acknowledged as grossly immoral, and sexual intercourse, a betrayal of a defining principle of monastic life. But with the promulgation of this training rule, the Buddha made it clear that he considered false boasts of spiritual prowess to have potentially disastrous long-term effects on Buddhist communities, every bit as, in fact, more dire than individual acts of lust or hatred. The Buddha's concern about what might appear to be simply a special case of wrong speech 
was due to the threat that it bore to the relationship between ordained and lay Buddhists, a relationship on which the future of the Buddha Sasana would depend. By claiming to be enlightened, monks would draw the interest, faith and support of the lay Buddhists away from the Sangha as a whole and towards themselves as charismatic individuals. The harmony of the Sangha would be undermined. Personality cults could well develop, in which lay people were exploited. Then, if and when the falsehood was revealed, their faith in Buddhism would be lost. Meanwhile, modest and genuinely liberated monastics might be neglected and disregarded by lay supporters who assumed that if they were truly enlightened, they would have already revealed it to the world. Lay Buddhists entertaining thoughts of disrespect towards liberated beings could be led to act or speak in ways that created seriously bad gamma. The expulsion offence sought to prevent all of these consequences. Even in cases where a monk revealed genuine spiritual attainments to lay Buddhists, usually with the intention of encouraging them in their practice, the danger to the ordained lay Buddhist relationship was not avoided. For this reason, the Buddha also declared a lesser offence of bhajitya for true revelations of spiritual prowess. Although Luang Po could have revealed his attainments to his fellow monks at Wat Bapong without transgressing a training rule, he did not. He would have been aware that any statements made to the Sangha would inevitably leak out to the lay community. The Sangha was not a fixed hermetic group. Every year, monks gave up the training and disrobed. Indeed, the testimony of disrobed monks, together with the words of monks praising their teacher to lay supporters, have always been the most common source of rumours about monks' attainments which spread throughout the wider Buddhist community. Luang Po kept a noble silence. He is what he is. As he presumably intended, Luang Po's lead on this matter created a culture of discretion at Wat Bapong. Spiritual attainments were considered private matters. Speculation about the attainments of others or asking questions about them was considered uncouth, and if the person referred to was Luang Po himself, inappropriate. This standard of restraint did much to protect the system of seniority laid down in the vinya from being undermined by cliques forming around more junior but charismatic monks. There was one occasion, however, when the culture came close to cracking. It occurred when a quite junior visiting monk claimed openly to resident monks that he was an arahant. Some members of the Sangha believed the claim to be true. Most were non-committal, and a few were dismissive. The authenticity of the monk's enlightenment became a favourite topic of conversation, especially when it became known, intriguingly, that he spent a lot of the time lying down. The report of one dialogue swept through the what. Apparently, on being asked what kind of meditation he practised while he was lying down, he had replied that while lying down, he didn't do anything at all. His questioner had then said that if he laid down without doing anything, he'd fall asleep. The monk replied, ah yes, 
but falling asleep would be doing something. The visiting monk's influence spread. Finally, somebody screwed up the courage to ask Lung Po for a definitive answer as to whether the monk was indeed what he said he was. But Lung Po had seen all this before and was not willing to feed the kind of curiosity that lay behind the question. In a neutral voice, he replied, If he is, he is. If he isn't, he isn't. Me, I'm not anything at all. There's nothing in me to be anything. Our affairs are our own. They're no business of anyone else, and others' business is nothing to do with us. This was a characteristic response. Lung Po had little time for monks who liked to gossip about other monks' attainments. Look instead at your own mind. Look at your intention. Why do you want to know? What good does it do you? What is the state of your mind right now? Is there still any greed there? Any aversion? Any delusion? How can you be free of them? After a while, the visiting monk left, and the small buzz of excitement faded. Sometime later, addressing the Sangha, Lung Po returned to a favourite theme. He taught that the right attitude to adopt towards the realisation of Dhamma, whether one's own or that of others, arose through the recollection of uncertainty. No experience whatsoever, however sublime, was to be grasped at. He cautioned his disciples about the defilements of insight, the vipassanupakilesas, in which identification with elevated states of mind developed through meditation led to erroneous beliefs in realization and a dangerous overestimation of one's achievements. Their samadhi is good, but there's no vipassana, and so they see only one side of things. They mistake their faith for wisdom and are blind to their wrong thinking. He reminded his disciples that levels of liberation were not new enlightened identities and counseled them, don't be anything at all. Being something, anything at all is suffering. Sneak into the presence of the Buddha. Where is the Buddha? Right there, in the impermanence, the unreliability of things. Take hold of that to begin with. If your mind is saying, I'm a stream enterer, bow to the Buddha and he'll tell you, Maybe, maybe not, may ne'er. You think, I'm a non-returner, and he'll say the same thing, maybe, maybe not. You think, I'm an arahant, and the Buddha will really give it to you, maybe, maybe not. Lung Po's avoidance of the topic of his own experience was matched by his more general reticence on the topic of liberation itself. In this, he followed the Buddha himself, who typically focused on the obstacles to realization and the methods needed to deal with them, and left aspirants to discover for themselves what remained once those obstacles had been overcome. There was only so much about a reality beyond language that could be captured in words. Lung Po held that while teachings about that reality might be inspiring, they could become obstacles on the path. A fixed idea of liberation could easily lead to anticipation, craving and identification with subtle mental states that would hinder the liberation from them. Towards the end of his teaching career, 
Luang Po was introduced to the teachings of the Zen tradition. He enjoyed the playful, paradoxical use of language he found there, and seemed to appreciate a way to speak about experiences beyond conventions and rational thought. Every now and again, he would speak in a cryptic, poetic style about things which he had hitherto been more reserved. In the beginning, I've said it's a matter of go quickly, come back quickly, stop quickly. If you keep on doing this, eventually there won't be anything much, things merely what they are. Everything will have come to an end. No need to walk, no need to retreat, no need to stop. No going, coming or stopping. It's all over. Take this away and reflect on it until it's clear in your mind. At that point, there's really nothing at all. Speculation Despite Long Paul's unwillingness to speak about the results of his practice, there would, nevertheless, seem to be a place in a book such as this one to address some common questions on the matter. For this reason, the following paragraphs will be devoted to the task. Although this section would have liked to have earned the title of Reflections, it has had to settle for the much less weighty Speculations. There can never be any cast-iron proof of the presence of spiritual maturity, only of its absence. But there are certain principles that may be relied upon when looking into the matter. The most important one lies in examining the Buddha's statements about the characteristics of liberated beings, and then observing whether or not, over a period of time, a person's actions and speech are consonant with those qualities. Also to be taken into account are whether the person believes himself to be liberated, and thirdly, whether other liberated beings confirm that he is. In the case of Luang Po, there is much evidence that his actions and speech did correspond to those of a liberated being, as revealed in the Buddha's discourses. Although he did not proclaim his liberation, it seems reasonable to assume from certain words by which he is known to have referred to himself, such as finished and nothing left, for example, that he felt assured of it. He was also recognized as liberated by the greatest of his contemporaries in the Thai forest tradition. Lung Ta Mahabua, the acknowledged leader of the tradition, was forthright on the point more than once, declaring, for example, that Luang Po Cha is a diamond of the first water. While none of these points is a proof, each one has provided grounds for Buddhist practitioners to establish a reasoned faith in Luang Po as a noble one. But if Luang Po's liberation is taken as a working hypothesis, a further query begs to be answered. Where and when did the significant breakthroughs in his practice occur? The only way to answer this question with any confidence would, of course, be through Luang Po's own testimony. But, as been mentioned earlier, he was silent on the matter. All that remains is conjecture. As a preface to the following remarks, it must be emphasized that there is no consensus on the matter amongst Luang Po's disciples. In fact, it is rarely discussed.
and no firm conclusions should be drawn from the points that are made. The first speculation is that Long Po had realized at least the first of the four levels of liberation, stream entry, before establishing Wat Bapong in 1954. The reasoning behind this assertion is that Long Po was strongly influenced by the teachings of Long Bu Mun and of the Buddha himself, cautioning monks from teaching before they were truly ready to do so. A Dhammapada verse, for example, states, One should first establish oneself in what is proper, then only should one instruct others. Such a wise person is not liable to be reproached. As he instructs others, so should he act himself. Dhammapada verses 158 and 159 The Buddha taught that unenlightened beings are severely restricted in the degree to which they may offer spiritual sustenance to others. On one occasion, he compared it to a person mired in a cesspit trying to pull another person free. Only when the compassionate person is on firm footing himself can he truly help anyone else. Lung Bu Man would sometimes speak of the bad gamma that can be created by one still prey to defilements who teaches others. Amongst his disciples, the most common interpretation of this warning was that only stream entry provides a monk with the unshakable right view that will guard against him leading students astray. In practice, this did not mean that Lung Bu Man forbade unenlightened monks from all kinds of teaching. Indeed, he encouraged his monks to give Dhamma talks to the villagers they met with on their Tudong wanderings. It was the establishment of a monastery and the formalization of the teaching role that seems to have been the step too far. The idea of a monk completing the final three stages of his own practice while fulfilling the role of a teacher was, however, sanctioned by the Buddha. He compared such a monk to the leader of a herd of animals who is able to take care of his herd without neglecting his own need for grazing. Taking these points into consideration, the fact that Luang Po started to take on disciples from around 1952 and in 1954 agreed to establish a monastery is significant. They would appear to be clear indications that by that time he considered himself to be standing on firm ground. To proceed further along this path of speculation, it may be deduced that as his visit to Lankar Mountain was for the purpose of gaining advice on a problem in his meditation, it must have preceded stream entry. His experience underneath the wooden Dhamma Hall as he descended the mountain is one of the best candidates for the key breakthrough. The gap between that day and the period when he first accepted monks as his students is around three years. This corresponds to a private comment later attributed to him that he carefully monitored his mind for three years before being absolutely sure that his breakthrough was genuine. Further circumstantial evidence is provided by his declaration that by practicing with real diligence, Five years is sufficient to realize stream entry. One point generally agreed upon is that when Lung Po established Wat Bapong, he still had work to do. 
This may well help to explain the rigor of the training that he developed in the first years of the monastery and somewhat relaxed in later years. There are few clues as to when he made the remaining breakthroughs, although one episode is suggestive. It is said that one day Lung Po lost his temper with an inattentive novice. The awareness that the capacity to lose his temper still dwelt within him was such a shock to Lung Po that he went into his kuti vowing not to leave it again until he had victory over this remnant of defilement. Ten days later, he emerged. To repeat once more, the preceding passages are speculative. For his disciples, the sense that their teacher was impeccable in Vinaya and absolutely trustworthy in the Dhamma was more important than estimations of his attainment. What they could know for themselves was that Lung Po's behavior showed no evidence of the presence of greed, hatred and delusion. On the contrary, he inspired in them a firm confidence that his actions were invariably motivated by wisdom and compassion. His teachings were profound and effective, and his knowledge of the subtleties of the mind completely assured. They were confident that he was absolutely reliable and would never lead them astray. Supernormal it was generally believed by his disciples that Luang Po possessed supernormal powers, in particular the ability to read minds, and this was another matter on which he was silent. What can be stated with some certainty is that whether or not Luang Po did indeed possess such powers, the belief that he did definitely influenced his disciples' perceptions of him and affected their practice. For many of the monks and nuns, it gave them an added motivation to let go of unwholesome thoughts. The idea that their teacher might know the kind of things their mind indulged in when swept along by a heedless mood was mortifying. It provided a strong support for as yet unstable virtues of wise shame and wise fear of consequences to mature. But could Luang Po actually read minds? For a Buddhist, it is not a far-fetched notion. A brief trawl through the Buddhist scriptures will confirm that the Buddha acknowledged the existence of many supernormal abilities, and it will also reveal how uncontroversial that acknowledgement was to his contemporaries. It should not be surprising. The possibility that adept meditators may develop such abilities has never been seriously disputed in cultures in which meditation is widely practiced. The Buddha debated with philosophers of every persuasion, including radical materialists, and yet he was never challenged over his recognition of psychic powers. It may be presumed that by doing so, his opponents would have forfeited their credibility. The Buddha himself possessed the full range of supernormal powers, but revealed them sparingly. Of particular note was his refusal to use them as a means to gain converts to his teachings. In the suttas, most of the infrequent occasions on which he displays his powers feature him teaching individuals with spiritual faculties sufficient for liberation but held back by strongly obstructive mental states. In such cases, the Buddha reveals marvelous abilities as a teaching strategy, providing a thought-stopping shock intended to knock the person off their balance and open them to the Dhamma. 
Examples may be found in the Buddha's meetings with his father and the murderer Angulimala. The Buddha was well aware of the fame and worldly temptations that would pursue monks who revealed psychic powers to the laity. When Venerable Bindola levitated to the top of a pole in a public demonstration and brought down the sandalwood alms bowl balanced on its peak, the Buddha strongly reproved him for behaving in an unseemly, unfitting manner. Just as a woman exhibits her private parts for the sake of a wretched little coin, even so a performance of superhuman miracles is given by you to the laity for the sake of a wretched wooden bowl. Chulawaga Chapter 5, Section 26 The Buddha announced that an offence of wrongdoing would be committed by any monk who acted in such way in the future. The possession of psychic powers such as the ability to fly through the air or walk on water was acknowledged by the Buddha as a considerable accomplishment, one of the three marvels or in Pali, Bhattiharya, but also as a potentially serious distraction to the practice leading to liberation. The Buddha spoke of three types of Bhattiharya, marvels or miracles. The miracle of psychic power, the miracle of mind-reading, and the miracle of teaching or instruction. Most importantly, the Buddha made it clear that such powers are not an indication of liberation. There have always been non-liberated meditators with supernormal powers and liberated meditators without them. Although the disjunction between supernormal powers and liberation was first demonstrated by the Buddha's evil but psychically gifted cousin Devadatta, the lesson has never really been absorbed. It's commonly assumed in Buddhist cultures of Southeast Asia that liberation automatically confers supernormal powers and that those possessing supernormal powers must surely be liberated. It was therefore almost inevitable that Longpur was widely believed to be blessed with special abilities. It is irrefutable that spiritual teachers become the objects of a great deal of projection and myth-making. This was certainly true of Longpur. Many of the marvellous stories told about him must be taken with at least a pinch of salt. And yet, it would be as imprudent to reject all of the stories from principle as it would be to accept every one of them out of faith. It is true that the majority of the accounts of people believing that Longpur read their minds are inconclusive. In many cases, a skeptic could probably attribute them to gullible believers reading specific references into broad or ambiguous statements. But there are also a number of occasions when a skeptical interpretation can only be sustained by stretching the bounds of credibility to its limits. And there are occasions when all common sense explanations are clearly inadequate. The reporters of these incidents were usually monks. A single example will suffice. One day, as a young monk returned from arms round at Ban Pung, a village a couple of kilometers to the south of Wat Ba Pong, he remembered thinking to himself, I'm so hungry, I'm going to eat a big meal today, I'll need to eat a ball of sticky rice the size of my head before I'm full. As he entered the monastery, he met Lung Po, who, smiling, said, 
So hungry, you're going to make a ball of sticky rice as big as your head, eh? The monk's face went a deep red. On that day, he said, he ended up eating far less than he normally did, rather than far more. Over the years, Dr. Utai, a close lay disciple and personal physician to Lung Po, observed many cases in which it seemed obvious to him that Lung Po knew what was in someone's mind. One day he couldn't resist asking him about it. All Lung Po would reply was, It's related to Sumadhi. It's not particularly profound, but it's not something to speak of lightly either. Fascination, whatever its object, and by its very nature, impedes the practice of Dhamma, and there are few things as fascinating as psychic powers. Lung Po saw no advantage in feeding people's hunger for such matters. Whether in his formal discourses or in conversation, he rarely mentioned psychic powers. If people asked him questions about them, he would usually cut them short. Once, someone asked him, Lung Po, they say you are fully enlightened. Does that mean that you can fly through the air? What's that got to do with it? Dung beetles can fly. Lung Po would redirect conversations about miraculous powers to the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to that cessation. When a schoolteacher asked him about the authenticity of passage he'd read in the Buddhist scriptures, in which fully enlightened beings are credited with miraculous powers, Lung Po pointed to the forest around them and replied, You're asking about things too far away. Why don't we talk about the tree stump you're stubbing your toe on right here? Of the three miracles, the Patiharya, the Buddha declared the third, the miracle of instruction, to be more sublime and noble than psychic powers and the ability to read minds. The ability to lead the deluded human mind to truth was the greatest of marvels. To this day, when senior disciples of Lung Po are asked about his supernormal powers, they prefer to talk about his possession of the marvellous power of instruction. But accounts of strange events will always survive, simply because they are so enjoyable. One, told by an elderly Mechi, recalls the occasion that a huge king cobra appeared in Watbapong. A class of deities called Nagas are found throughout the Buddhist texts. They appear in the world as unusually large snakes, particularly king cobras. After his enlightenment, it is said that the Buddha was sheltered from the elements by the great Naga Muchalinda. This huge king cobra that appeared in Watbapong had a tail which ended in a stump, and so Lung Po gave it the name Stumpy. As he made his way on arms round to Ban Peng every day, Stumpy would slither along behind Lung Po. One day, a villager setting off to his fields noticed that Lung Po's footprints had been obscured by the marks of a large snake. Seeing this, he ran back into the village shouting, The Ajahn's brought a snake with him on arms round! The frightened villagers followed the tracks which overlay Luang Po's all the way back to the monastery. The next morning, they spoke with him angrily. Ajahn, why did you bring a snake with you on arms round? We won't put food in your bowl anymore. We're afraid. It's nothing to do with me. I didn't bring any snake. 
What do you mean? We've seen its marks. They completely obscure your footprints. After Lung Po insisted that he had simply walked on arms round as usual, a group of villagers went out to investigate. They discovered that the snake had followed Luang Po from the forest, entered the spirit house at the entrance to the village, waited for Luang Po to emerge, and then followed him back to the monastery. Luang Po had not seen the snake itself, but had observed the marks it had left. The next morning, as he left on arms round, he stood at the edge of the forest and said loudly, Stumpy, don't follow me on arms round. The villagers are afraid of you. Go and find a place to live deep in the forest. Don't let people see you again. In the future, there will be a lot of people coming to the monastery, and they'll be afraid. After that, the big king cobra was never seen again. <laughs>